Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science, a future classic episode we have for you today, as I think all our episodes are future classics. But Claire, what have you got for us today? Well, Chris, um, we have a special guest with us this week, Adele Pentland, who is Lost in Science's resident paleontologist and pterosaur expert. Adele lives up in Winton in, um, in Queensland. She is our correspondent in the field, talking to us all about incredible dinosaur and flying reptile research that is coming out of Australia at the moment. So Adele's going to be chatting about a discovery that was made that started with a tiny little bone as paleontological you know, discoveries are normally made. A tiny little bone that was thought to be a pterosaur that ended up, you know, turning into something quite different. And it is quite the story. So um, stay tuned for that. Excellent. Stu, what about you? I'm actually going to be answering the, well, it's not an age-old question. There's a current question of, is it worth arguing with people on the internet? No. When mm. they're wrong. <laughs> Good thing we're on the radio and not on the internet. Yeah. Well, we're probably downloadable on the internet, but it is a big question. Is it, is it worth trying to correct people when they're saying things that aren't true on the internet? And, of course, being a big question, there is some science to answer that question, and people have been researching how do we effectively correct people who are getting science wrong on the internet. Uh, and is it worth doing? And uh, I've, I've found some research that suggests, in fact, it is worth attempting to correct ah. people who are spreading misinformation. So if you're out there and you're you're trying to nudge people in the direction of correct <laughs> science information, I'm going to tell you some ways that you might be able to do that. So um, hopefully stay tuned for that. And it's kind of, you know, it's an increasingly important thing as some of these decisions are affecting our daily lives, really, uh, whether people um, are doing what the science tells them to do or whether people are thinking that they know better than experts in their field. So, Fantastic. Well, thanks, Stu. It sounds like you're defending your own favourite pastime. I look forward to hearing your justification very shortly. On with the show. So this week on the show, we are so happy to welcome back and be joined again by paleontologist and PhD researcher Adele Pentland. Hello, Adele. Hey, Claire. How are you going? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thank you. Now, Adele, um, you've got a bit of a story for us today. It happens to be an anniversary Yeah, so I was thinking we could talk about a little bone from a dinosaur that my colleagues and I 
described about this time last year. So it was sort of like a little bone that created big waves in the world of paleontology. Would you would you say that's the truth or is that? I mean, I think the story that you can get from just this one single discovery, it's pretty awesome. Nothing, nothing as crazy as finding T-Rex in Australia or anything like that, uh, but still pretty interesting. Take us back to the start. How was the bone found? Yeah, so you may or may not know that a lot of the dinosaur fossils found in Victoria, they're found on the Otway coast and there's actually a group of volunteers called Dinosaur Dreaming. That team <laughs> has been helping discover dinosaur bones for a few decades. They go out onto the beach, you know, battling with the tides and trying to find incredible fossils in this really hard rock. So to set the scene, the animals that they're looking at, they lived about 110, 107 million years ago, give or take. Okay. And mm, So in dinosaur terms, 107, 110 million years ago, mm -hmm. what, what period are we talking there? So it's the early Cretaceous, but just to sort of put things in perspective and bookend when the dinosaurs were around, they sort of first appeared about 250 or so million years ago and they went extinct about 65 million years ago. Okay, great. So a whole bunch of these dinosaur dreamers, they're on the beach, they're looking looking for bones and do they find them every year? Oh, yeah. They have thousands of log specimens all at Melbourne Museum and they have things from remains of like these massive crocodile-like amphibians called temnospondyls so they're these big ambush predators with Whoa. big heads like the size of a toilet seat lid which is crazy to think about <laughs> especially if you're afraid of frogs there are tiny tiny mammals uh, and of course dinosaurs as well I can imagine there's probably some uh, fossils that you find that are more important than others, and there was one that was of particular importance. Yeah, absolutely. So the fossil that we're talking about today, it's actually a neck bone, a neck vertebrae, and it, it looks very different compared to a vertebrae you might see in other vertebrates today. This is radio, so I'll try my best to describe it. Uh, <laughs> okay. But basically, it's five centimetres long and it's about a centimetre tall. So it's very, like, long and sort of a sweeping shape, uh, very weird looking as well. So the processes that stick out in a vertebrae, the sticky-outy bits as I think of them, looks like the kind of weird space-age shape that would do really good in, like, a aerodynamic sort of thing that air sure. situation where they're sort of seeing how particles move around it it looks like a spaceship. very odd yeah they could look like anything so <laughs> we'll go with that yeah but yeah what was really exciting about it is that uh it was complete as well so during the process of discovering it in the rock uh only a very small part had been nicked off but it's mostly hollow with these internal struts, as I'll tell you about later. But it was complete, almost, except for like a tiny little bit, and three-dimensionally preserved. So it hadn't been distorted or broken up as well, which is quite unique for our Victorian deposits. Right. Because 
they're big river channels, like a kilometre wide and they're very fast flowing. So the chance of finding a really great bone that's in reasonable shape, given its age, it's really nice to work with. And who found this fossil? It was found by Jessica Parker. So she was studying at Deakin University at the time. And yeah, she made this discovery. And I think even in the field, they realized that it was, you know, top priority and that when they brought it back to the Melbourne Museum, they were going to prepare it and manually remove the rock away from that bone. So how did you become involved in this story? Yeah, so we have spoken before because I mainly research uh, Australian pterosaurs, which are flying reptiles that lived at the time of the dinosaurs. Not dinosaurs, uh, not dinosaurs, dinosaurs. as I have many times made the mistake of doing, of saying. (laughs) Everyone makes that mistake and everyone also will call them pterodactyls, which as I've said before, is like calling all dinosaurs tyrannosaurs. <laughs> Once you see it, you can't unsee it. But yes, so I was working on Australian pterosaurs and after the bone had been prepared, when the then collections manager of vertebrate paleontology, David Pickering, had removed the rock from that bone, he noticed that it was a vertebrae, so he correctly identified it as a neck bone. Uh, but he thought it was from a pterosaur. So Mm. it was sitting in the Melbourne Museum collections labelled as from a pterosaur. Potentially. This was back, that's what the specimen label said, but until a researcher comes along, it sort of remains to be seen, I guess, officially Mm -hmm. um, in air quotes. So that would have been about 2015, 2016, It wasn't until later when I started my PhD that it sort of fell to me to work on the pterosaur stuff from Victoria. No one else had really stepped up to the plate to work on these fossils. So we sort of decided that we would go from there. But the reason why I sort of kickstarted my PhD is because I complete a not a complete but a very good specimen had been found in the Winton area Uh, so I was dedicating a lot of my time to that until it was described and published in 2019. Every now and then I would go back down to Melbourne and I would you know have a look at the stuff there sort of make some preliminary observations and you know just sort of get the cogs turning knowing that I would return to these fossils eventually. So I had actually looked at this one pterosaur vertebrae, in air quotes, two or three times because it was sort of the best pterosaur fossil that they had in their collections. And eventually I realised, oh, goodness, this actually isn't a pterosaur bone. What am I going to do? (laughs) And how did you come to that conclusion? With pterosaurs, with their neck bones, So if we imagine a vertebrae, there's like a main column part that sits next to every vertebrae before and after it. Right. And that's called the centrum. In pterosaurs, the end that is closest to the head is always a ball shape and the end closest to the tail is always a cup shape. Right. But this vertebrae had two cup shapes. Big red flag. 
well, yeah, it's either a case of, oh my God, this totally bucks the trend and this is totally different to everything else. Or yeah, red flag should go off and go, hang on a minute. This might not be what I think it is. Right. So what did that then lead you to do? Yeah, basically I panicked straight off the bat <laughs> right, because yeah. I kind of went, oh gosh, this is this is getting out of my wheelhouse now. So I, yeah, talked about it with my supervisor, Dr. Steve Poropat, and he was like, well, let's look at a reference book. We actually had this conversation in the collections manager office at Melbourne Museum. And at this point, David Pickering, the collection manager who had prepared the specimen, he had actually passed away, but his partner had actually donated all his reference books and they were all around us as we sat and had this conversation. So he pulled one book out, it's called The Dinosauria, and he was flicking through it and you know, I was, well, pterosaurs aren't in there, obviously, but he kind of said, you know, it's not a sauropod because one, the size is way off and two, sauropod vertebrae are like reverse pterosaur vertebrae. And just for everyone playing at home, sauropods are like your big, big dinosaurs with the long necks, right? Yeah. Yeah. Those vertebrae would be just in a completely league of their own in terms of size. Yeah. And the shape of it was wrong as well we kind of were thinking oh maybe it's some sort of theropod but that's that's a pretty big group it includes things like tyrannosaurus rex like Mm. you know think bipedal as in walking on two legs dinosaurs right and you know it was quite a lot but yeah steve was sort of flicking through this group and he saw one um, Coelophysis, which is much, much earlier in the piece, like way before the Cretaceous. And he was like, oh, similar, but yeah, I don't think so. And continued flicking through. And then he found Gallimimus, which is a type of Ornithomimosaur. And that name means ostrich mimic. So as you can uh, imagine, they're quite mm-hmm. leggy, um, yeah. which makes them really good at running. Right. Uh, it was, was, again, not quite right, just in that we don't, really there's not good evidence for ornithomimosaurs being sort of down under in our neck of the woods and other continents that would have Mm -hmm. been attached to Australia at the time as well so we kind of went oh yeah but it's not impossible but it's kind of unlikely and then Steve had this light bulb moment and he remembered that a dinosaur from Tanzania called Alaphrosaurus bambergai when he was a kid reading his dinosaur books, he remembered that some people were saying that Alaphrosaurus could be an ornithomimosaur, sort of similar to Gallimimus. But, you know, in the 1990s, they showed that uh, they just look similar because, yeah. you know, they do similar things with their bodies. It's convergent evolution. Um, but that kind of stuck with him. And then, mm. yeah, we we looked at these images of Alaphrosaurus and you know, we were pretty certain at that point because they just looked so similar. It's not so far-fetched that you would find a cousin of Alaphrosaurus bambergai in Australia, but Alaphrosaurus is a little bit older. You know, it looked like if our vertebrae was a dinosaur related to it, that it would sort of extend its range in time in geologic time by about 40 million years 40 million years so yeah when we sort of 
you know, thinking about these things, we did some written descriptions, comparisons. Uh, there was one little hitch with this bone, and that is that David Pickering, when he had prepared it, he had left the underside, the bottom side of the vertebrae in the rock, oh. which makes handling it really nice. Mm. But as it happened, we wanted to see whether it had like a little ridge on the bottom called a keel, like a keel, like a boat yeah. in order to do our comparisons. But thankfully, because the specimen was of significance when people thought it was a pterosaur, uh, it had actually been scanned at the synchrotron in Melbourne. And that data was just sort of sitting on the shelf waiting to go. So yeah, right. that was awesome. The synchrotron is like that particle accelerator thing that can shoot. That's ex- a way better ex- explanation. Shoot, shoot x-rays it- and stuff. And then yeah, and you can sort of see, see through rock or, you know, whatever you want to be able to see through. That's incredible um, that you had access to that extra information. Yeah. So it was really great in that we were able to see what the underside looked like without having to remove it from its rock any further. And we could also see what the internal structure was mm. like. So we could see that it was, it's mostly hollow, but it still had some connective struts to add, you know, just make it a little bit stronger as well. From that information, you know, was the paleontological world then sort of thrown out, you know, and into this new understanding of what elaphrosaurs are and when they lived and where they live? Kind of, yes. So I I should also mention as we were getting things ready to prepare our manuscript on the specimen, uh, we actually got to meet with a paleontologist called Dr. Matt Carano, who is the curator of dinosaur material at the National Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian in America. And he had redescribed Alaphrosaurus, the one from Tanzania, when it had been taken down from display in Germany. Yeah, the crazy thing is, as we were getting ready to do the stuff, he was coming over to Australia for a big paleontology conference. He visited Melbourne and he saw the specimen. And yeah, he said, yeah, it's some type of Elaphrosaurine dinosaur, a cousin of Elaphrosaurus, which was awesome. So Amazing. yeah, it gave us a big boost. So we tried to um, get our manuscript together as quickly as possible. But the funny thing is, as we had submitted our paper and it was sort of in review, which is sort of, it's like purgatory, basically. <laughs> and while all this was happening, there had been a research team in Argentina describing a specimen there and it was an elaphrosaurine dinosaur which they named as a new species and it was actually younger than us as well oh really Um, yeah yeah it does happen um but yeah it was just so funny that you know two research teams like independent of another are working on this type of dinosaur from two different continents Adele, what an incredible journey. There must be so many stories waiting to be told from this site in the Otways. What's happening next? Yeah, so the site is called Eric the Red West. It's actually near a shipwreck site. And we had hoped to return to it last year, but there was a bushfire risk in February and then Mm -hmm. COVID. We do hope to get back there because there's this specimen as well as a small little ornithopod dinosaur called Dalubi Cursor. 
there must be more material out there. We just have to find it. Uh, a bit of talk in the news lately about vaccine hesitancy, uh, which is the reluctance of some people to get vaccinated, and not just against COVID-19, but for many things that are preventable through vaccination. And there are a number of subjects that have very good scientific evidence to back them up uh, from multiple fields of research, but which non-scientists may say or believe are just matters of opinion. Now, in the age of social media, almost anyone can present their opinion in public and have others taken on board, which some might argue is just freedom of speech in action. But we might suggest it's a potential danger to have unqualified opinions being given the same level of exposure and afforded the same believability as expert opinions, especially in areas like medicine and people's health. The problem of incorrect or misinformed science opinions spreading is one that most scientists are concerned about, but not necessarily one that people really know how to handle. So obviously some scientists have set out to figure out how to address this problem in various ways, both in online social media environments and in face-to-face social situations. So there was a study published in Nature Human Behaviour in 2019 that found that not responding to incorrect claims about scientific information specifically often can lead to negative effects in other people who are not necessarily directly involved in the discussion. So looking at conversations about scientific topics, having incorrect information leads people who are listening to that discussion into developing negative attitudes towards particular science findings. In other words, people who only heard bad information about science thought bad things about it. Mm. And it tended to make them avoid possible benefits from it, like getting a vaccine, for example. Right. So the study also found that by identifying and pointing out particular rhetorical techniques, basically the machinery of someone's argument, uh, those same onlookers could learn to identify similar methods used elsewhere. So by engaging with people who were spreading misinformation, you could teach people who were paying attention to the conversation but not part of it, teach those people to spot these particular rhetorical techniques that people use. Things like, you know, logical fallacies and things like that. The other way of directly opposing incorrect information in discussion is to present the actual facts of what is being discussed. So you could present different types of evidence and that's one way of correcting misinformation. But people are variable in how easily they'll accept new information. So if you've got third-party evidence that you can say, look, here's the evidence here, that's more convincing to some people as well. Now, these kind of rebuttals might not convince the individual who's arguing the point, but they might sway someone who's just reading the exchange online, for example, which is a positive impact people can have. You can influence the audience a lot more than you can potentially influence the person who's who's putting this argument forward. Now, in some situations, like actual public debate, 
not engaging can be a better strategy. Uh, if if someone not showing up results in a debate being cancelled, that's a better outcome than than presenting two sides of an argument where really only one side of the argument is accurate. So not exposing people to fake information in the first mm. place is a better option every time. And this is what they found in this study as well. So changing someone's mind directly is quite a different matter to changing on changing an onlooker's mind about something. They are not feeling any kind of emotional effect. But if you're talking to someone directly, they often will take the discussion on a more emotional level. So in these cases, the facts themselves might not be the best way to change their mind, especially if you're in a face-to-face situation like a family gathering or in a workplace environment. So in those kind of scenarios, it's better, according to the studies, to take a more conciliatory approach. Try and work out what the person is objecting to emotionally and try and find positive emotional reasons for taking on the science while also trying to introduce more accurate information to the discussion. So the person promoting this misinformation is likely to have been misinformed themselves or just misunderstood the information they were given. Mm-hmm. So without being confrontational, if you can sort of introduce more accurate information to them to try and move them back towards the the uh, correct information because they've actually invested themselves into this misinformation right. which, they, which they believe. So you've got to take it as a very sort of psychological, emotional discussion ra- you know, rather than being a confrontational, you've got your facts wrong straight away. So one thing it, uh, that they did find in the Nature Study, which was also very interesting, was that the backfire effect, which is the idea that hearing opposing information to an existing viewpoint would make people double down on their on their on their incorrect beliefs they actually found that had a very minimal impact in these kind of um, debates and discussions that people didn't really do that as much as people are concerned about so presenting opposing information is still a good thing to do not just for the onlookers but for people engaged in these discussions now in a related study researchers also wanted to know if people could be trained to identify misinformation and they developed an app called the bad news game which aimed to teach people about the methods misinformation is spread by so they could better identify examples in the real world and it's basically um you you pretend you're a fake news publisher (laughs) and you try and see how well you can mislead people and by doing that you learn the methods that are best for doing that and then you can recognize them in the real world and what they found by by using this bad news game was that people could improve their ability to spot misinformation after playing the game and the more they played it the better at it they got at spotting this misinformation so that's that's a positive outcome is that they they actually started calling it pre-buttle rather than rebuttal so this pre-buttle of incorrect information also helped prepare people to uh, to fight against misinformation on the internet and the uh, general media as well. So one of the other things they did was developed a junior version for kids aged 8 to 10 so they could oh, play there you go. this bad news game again. So in the end, I guess the fight against fake news could, in the end, be child's play.
And that's all we have time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or just tune in again next week wherever you find us when we get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.